Right, so I'm wanting to look um, over these few weeks. We're going over the, the first few chapters of Acts. Uh, just, you know, what, what is the church that we see in Acts? And, and if we want to get the results that they saw in Acts, let's see what they did in Acts. So I'm looking at Acts 4 with uh, Peter and John when they go before the Sanhedrin. So just prior to this bit, we have uh, Peter and John coming to, um, coming to the, the temple to come and do their thing, and there's, uh, uh, you might remember the story where they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you, and the guy gets healed, and everybody's in an uproar. Well, some, some good uproar, some bad uproar. And uh, so, so from Acts, Acts 4 verse 1, um, we'll just go straight to Scripture. Uh, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking, so they came and interrupted everything. Uh, to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. They are not allowed to do this. We are the only ones who are allowed to teach the people. This is the temple God and the Sadducees specifically, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Also, a big issue for the Sadducees, the whole idea of the resurrection. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail because everybody's got to get home for supper until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so the number, of those, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So sorry for you guys. Didn't work. But anyway, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law, so all the, all the important folks, met in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Jesus, I mean, then Jesus, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there he's, he's quoting the, the scriptures that they know. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other man under heaven, name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, now they'd kind of got their most intimidating bunch of important people together, and they said, what are you guys up to? And they came out with courage uh, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men quoting their scriptures back at them. Uh, they were astonished. They saw their courage and were astonished, and they took note. They saw their courage, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could do. They saw the evidence, there was nothing they could do. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed this notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in, his name, in this name. They, they don't even say the name, just in that name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. 
They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. There's hope (laughs) for those over 40. (laughs) On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then skip a verse. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit. And after they prayed, sorry, through the name of your Holy Servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place they were where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And that's one thing I just love about the book of Acts, is that it's, it's the story of the Acts of the Apostles, that we can just really climb into what, what they were going through at that time. But I think sometimes we can think, okay, that was fun. I, I haven't heard of anybody going to jail for preaching on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, I don't know anybody who's done that. Um, and so I felt like let's, let's have a look at some contemporary uh, contemporary people who are experiencing that kind of, or more contemporary at least, experiencing that kind of persecution. So to get to the title of what we're looking at today, I'm looking at the idea of living martyrs, living martyrs. And that word martyr comes from a, a Greek, Greek word martyrs, which means witness. So in the Bible, we see uh, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The word there is, is martyrs. Uh, when you see, uh, uh, you'll be my witnesses, you'll be my my martyrs. But in those contexts, it's not meaning martyr in the sense of, of that we usually think of it first up as someone who dies for their faith. There it means a witness as in someone witnessing, testifying in a legal sense of what they've seen and heard. But there's also the, the, the idea of martyrdom where someone dies for their faith and, and like Stephen in Acts 6 uh, being the first, the, the first martyr uh, where he was preaching boldly and they, um, the, he, was, he was killed for his preaching. And so we, we think of it either as someone who suffers for their faith, someone who, or, as, or aspects, of, aspects of practicing their faith, or someone who dies uh, or sacrifices something important for the kingdom, um, someone who endures suffering or persecution. Um, but at this point, I just want to bring out a little difference that I'm going to talk about a little bit more later, because so often you hear people say, oh, you know, this organized extremist religion uh, just leads to all sorts of dangerous things and people doing dangerous things. Um, and I just want to draw a distinction between a Christian martyr and martyrs of other religious traditions. Jesus gave his life, essentially was, was a martyr of sorts, so that we could get eternal life. And so we, in turn, give our lives into this kingdom, into the service of our king, so that others can get eternal life. So it's that thing of giving life so that others can get life. Okay? We give our lives so that others can get life. What we see in other religious traditions is martyrs take the lives of others so that they can get life. 
so that they can get assurance of eternal life. And you can see how that's a, 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 a twisting and a turning of, of what, what God has intended in our lives, that we give life so that others can get life, not take life so that we can get life. We're not trying to prove anything. It just comes out of us. So, this is a book um, called Jesus Freaks. I don't know if anybody remembers Jesus Freaks. What will people do when they find out it's true? Yeah, so DC Talk um, had a book, I mean, had a song called Jesus Freaks, and they uh, also released this book many years ago, even before I first became a Christian. It was a really pivotal book. Uh, reading this as an early Christian is <laughs> dangerous, <laughs> but good, the good kind of dangerous, uh, because it's a book, it's released by DC Talk and a group called The Voice of the Martyrs and the stories of those who did, stood for Jesus, the ultimate Jesus freaks. So it starts with, the, or it includes stories of the apostles who were martyred and various martyrs up until, uh, up until the 90s. And even today, um, uh, around the world, the, the estimates are, are 8,000 Christians are killed every year uh, for their faith around the world. And that's not including homes that are attacked, persecution that occurs, people who are injured or otherwise you know, affected negatively. Those are lives lost specifically. Uh, and if you want uh, a link to where you can find those kinds of stats and which are the most dangerous uh, countries for Christians, I think uh, Afghanistan, North Korea are currently the top two most dangerous um, countries for uh, Christians to, to be in. Um, China has been up there and a number of others. But um, I, can, I can give you those links. But I want to tell you the story of a guy called Richard Wurmbrandt. Has anybody heard of Richard Wurmbrandt? Yeah. Um, and so just a short uh, thing. He was a pastor in Romania. One by one, the priests and pastors of Romania stood and offered words of praise for communism and declared their loyalty to the new regime. Their statements of unity, propaganda for the communists, were broadcast to the world over the radio, direct from the parliament building. This was in 1945, by the way. So not quite contemporary, but a little bit more contemporary than, than 35 AD. <laughs> it was the year after the communists had seized power in Romania. The government had invited all religious leaders to attend a congress at the parliament building. Over 4,000 attended. First, they chose Joseph Stalin as honorary president of the congress. Then the speeches began. It was absurd and horrible. Communism was declared. Communism was dedicated to the destruction of religion, as had already been shown in Russia. Yet bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity were fundamentally the same and could coexist. Out of fear, these men of God were filling the air with flattery and lies. It was as if they had spat in Jesus' face. Sabina Wurmbrandt, Richard Wurmbrandt's wife, could take it no longer. She whispered to her husband, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. Richard knew what would happen. If I speak, you will lose your husband. She replied, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. Pastor Wurmbrandt took the stage. To everyone's surprise, he began to preach. Immediately, a great silence fell on the hall. Delegates, it is our duty not to praise earthly powers that come and go, but to glorify God the Creator and Christ the Savior who died for us on the cross. A communist official jumped to his feet. This would not do. The whole country was hearing the message of Christ proclaimed from the rostrum of the communist parliament. Your right to speak is withdrawn, he shouted. Wurmbrandt ignored him and went on. 
the atmosphere began to change. The audience began to applaud. He was saying what they had all wanted to, but were afraid to. The official bellowed, cut the microphone. The crowd shouted him down, pastor, 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 they chanted. The shouting and clapping went on long after the microphone wires were severed and Wimbrandt had stepped down. The Congress was ended for the day. After this, Wimbrandt, Richard Wimbrandt was a marked man. On Sunday, February 29, 1948, Pastor Wimbrandt was on his way to church when he was kidnapped by a small group of secret police. He tells what happens next. I was led to a prison 30 feet beneath the earth where I was kept in solitary confinement for years. I was kept alone in a cell. Never did I see sun, moon, stars, flowers. Never did I see a man except the interrogators who beat and tortured me. Never did I have a book, never a bit of paper. When after many years I had to write again, I could not even remember how to write a capital D. To make the feeling of isolation worse, the prison was kept completely silent. Even the guards had cloth shoes, so their steps would not be heard. When we were first put in solitary confinement, it was like dying. Every one of us lived again his past sins and his neglect of duties. We all had an unimaginable pain in our hearts, thinking that we had not done our utmost for the highest, for the one who had given his life for us on the cross. I was in the depths of remorse and pain when suddenly the wall of the jail began to shine like diamonds. I have seen many beautiful things, but never have I seen the beauties which I have seen in the dark cell beneath the earth. Never have I heard such beautiful music as on that day. The King of Kings, Jesus, was with us. We saw his understanding, loving eyes. He wiped our tears away. He sent us words of love and words of forgiveness. We knew that everything which had been evil in our lives, had passed away, had been forgotten by God. Now there came wonderful days. The bride was in the arms of the bridegroom. We were with Christ. We didn't know we were in prison. Sometimes when we were beaten and, beaten and tortured, we were like St. Stephen, who while they threw stones at him, did not see his murderers, did not see the stones, but saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. In the same way, we didn't see the communist torturers, we didn't see that we were in prison. We were surrounded by angels. We were with God. We no longer believed about God and Christ and angels because Bible verses said it. We didn't remember Bible verses anymore. We remembered about God because we experienced it. With great humility, we can say with the apostles what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what we have touched with our fingers, this we tell you. After years of solitary confinement, we were put together in huge cells, sometimes with 200 or 300 prisoners in each cell. I will not tell you the whole truth, because you could not bear to hear it. But this I will tell. Christian prisoners were beaten, then tied on crosses for four days and four nights without interruption. The communists then stood around them, jeering and mocking. Look at your Christ, how beautiful he is, what fragrances he brings from heaven. Then they kicked the other prisoners, forcing them to kneel down and to adore and worship this besmeared living crucifix. Then worse time came, times of brainwashing. Anyone who has not passed through it cannot understand what torture it is. From five in the morning until ten in the evening, 17 hours a day, we had to sit perfectly straight. We were not allowed to lean or rest our head. To close our eyes was a crime. 17 hours a day we had to hear, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid. Nobody believes in Christ anymore. Nobody believes in Christ anymore. Give up, give up give up. For days, weeks, and years, we had to listen to this. 
And after all that, finally the worst came, if that wasn't the worst. Communists torture those who believe in God with red-hot iron pokers, with rubber truncheons, with sticks, with all kinds of methods. Christians were tortured by the communists. And then a miracle appeared when it was at the worst, when we were tortured as never before. We began to love those who tortured us. Just as a flower, when you bruise it under your foot, rewards you with its perfume, the more we were mocked and tortured, the more we pitied and loved our torturers. Many have asked Fernbrandt, how can you love someone who is torturing you? He replies, by looking at men, not as they are, but as they will be. I could also see in our persecutors a Saul of Tarsus, a future apostle Paul. Many officers of the secret police to whom we witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison for having found our Christ. Although we were whipped as Paul was in our jailers, we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask, what must I do to be saved? It was in prison that we found hope of salvation for the communists. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility toward them. In communist prison, the idea of a Christian mission to the communists was born. We asked ourselves, what can we do to win these men to Christ? The gates of heaven are not closed for them, nor is the light quenched for them. They can repent like anyone else, and we must call them to repentance. Only love can change the communist and the terrorist. And so Richard Wimbrandt was finally released in 1956. He had been altogether over that time. He was was imprisoned for 14 years. And um, also his his wife, Sabina, was in prison for, I think, four four years as well. He he, uh, made great strides towards increasing awareness of things that were going on because people just didn't know that that was the kind of persecution that, that Christians were suffering. But what I gave you there was, was four pages of, of this. Um, and there's just story after story, some one page, some two pages um, of, of Christian martyrs. And uh, I know they, that the Voice of the Martyrs organization has some audio books, free audio books, um, if, if it is possible for you to get this and read it, I'd really recommend it because it just brings a real groundedness to your faith. That, that uh, sorry, my voice is a bit funny. That outside of all of this, our church meetings and our Christian mugs and the, the, the Christian culture that we have is a real lava core of faith that we need to have. And I think often it's, it's easy to, to keep the crust uh, of, of the Christianese. And I feel like, like God is wanting to reignite that lava core, that hot lava core for people today. Um, I remember reading this and then thinking, you know, would I die for Jesus? Would I, you know, not deny? Because what they would do is they would say, deny Jesus and you can live, you know, or if you won't deny him, then we'll kill you, like standing there with a gun to your head or, or, or something like that. And, and I'd kind of ask myself, can I do it? Can I do it? And, and I felt like God saying to me, you, can, you can't. You can't. <laughs> and, and it changed to a Jesus, make me a person who could do that. Make me a person. I want you to burn so hot inside of me that, that I could not do otherwise that it wouldn't even be a thought, there wouldn't even be a moment of fear, but, but joy only, and, and an absolute fixed knowledge that, that, that I could never d- deny you. You do it, Jesus. 
I could never, ever, ever do this. And I feel like Jesus is wanting to do that for, for us today. And as I was reading, I read through all of these stories again in, in preparation. And what just really struck me was, was the similarities between them. And you'll see with that story with Peter and John as well. That so many of these guys developed a love for their enemies. They, instead of saying, you know, what, you know, kind of, oh, we must, you know, go and fight back or go and, you know, kill them back or torture them back or something, they still, you know, like they're preaching to the guys in the Sanhedrin, Stephen preaching to the guys who were persecuting them. You see in these stories, until the very last moment, you know, until, you know, the axe falls, preaching, using their last breath to declare the kingdom of God, to declare the salvation of the cross with their absolute last, the last breath, the last moment, what can I do to, to, to further the kingdom, to, to bring someone else in, to show the love of God. And it's such an incredible uh, testament or testimony to, to the love of Jesus where he says, you know, when the, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And there's another story where the one, the one lady is being tortured every day. They come in and torture, take people's fingernails off, do all sorts of horrific things. And she said just the one day she saw that they were as tired as she was in their persecution. And she saw them as Jesus saw them. And, and often you would see in these stories that the persecutors become, they are astonished in the same way that those at the Sanhedrin were astonished at their courage. And they took note that these people had been with Jesus. In these stories, you see the, the persecutors astonished at their courage. And they took note that these people had been with Jesus. It was undeniable to see that there was something incredibly powerful happening there. Another similarity that you see is the role of, of worship. Just as we saw today, they stuck in a prison in the dark, sometimes alone, sometimes sometimes in overcrowded conditions where everyone would, would have to pack in, literally pack in, so that one person could or two people could lie down and sleep uh, just because there was no space. And you can imagine that would lead to highly unsanitary conditions and being kept like that for months. Um, in those places, worship, praise. Because they had seen God. They had a real living faith. They hadn't heard about it from someone else. They hadn't seen something and were a bit curious or had kind of had Jesus on the periphery of their lives. Jesus was the center. And so I feel like for, for those of us for whom Jesus has drifted to the periphery and something else has become center, I feel like today is a day where, where we can just put Jesus back at the center again so that everything else in our lives revolves around Jesus at the center rather than Jesus being something out there that kind of comes into our orbit every now and then that our lives, everything in our lives finds its place in orbit around him. And part of this is also, well, we don't live in Russia or Romania at that time or China or Afghanistan or North Korea. What what does this mean for me? Am I somehow less of a Christian because I'm not in those environments? I'm not. But even though we, we may never face the decision of, of whether or not to die for our faith, every day 
we can decide to live for our faith. And am I allowed to quote from Lord of the Rings? <laughs> um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's not uh, you know, these great deeds that keep the forces of darkness at bay. It's the everyday actions of ordinary people. And, and so there are these, these great stories about these great people in one moment of their lives or sometimes a period in their lives where they were in intense situations and made intense decisions. But each of us are in places where we can choose for or against. We can choose to or we can choose not to live for Jesus, make him the center of our lives. We may not ever need to die for him, but we can choose to live for him and live absolutely every second, every breath, just as they used the last breath that they had in their lungs. And they will say, we will cut your tongue out if you keep speaking. He said, well, I'm going to keep speaking anyway. And, and then he would, he would just keep, keep praising anyway, making whatever noises he could just to keep praising. But never in their own strength. And you'll see in some of the stories as well, they said, I never, I never thought I'd be able to stand. I never thought I could, I could be that brave. I never thought I could be that bold. And each and every single one of them says the Holy Spirit emboldened us. The Holy Spirit gave us the strength. The Holy Spirit gave us the words. So as, as we are pressured in those things, those are the moments where we can, where we can just invite the Holy Spirit to say, I've, I've got nothing right now. I've got, I've got nothing even to make these everyday choices seem so huge right now. And there was a song uh, many years ago, Jesus, take my life when I don't have the strength to give it away. And every day we can say, Jesus, take my life. I am completely submitted to you. I'm completely given over to you. I'm everything, everything that I have, that I am, that I say, that I speak, that I think, it's all yours. It's absolutely all yours. Do with it as you will, with your strength, with your wisdom, your love flowing through me. We can make that choice every day. We can be witnesses, martyrs, living martyrs. Witnesses who testify to the incredible love of Jesus. The incredible sacrifice made on the cross. I think maybe sometimes we don't realize what a powerful witness we have. And, and I remember times when, when I've struggled and people have said to me, just when you walk in, something's different. Just by your presence, something is different. And I think so often we underestimate just as we bring in the Holy, Holy Spirit, what that, what that presence can do. So even if you just start there, I'm just going to show up and I'm bringing Jesus because Jesus is with me. Even if that's all you do to start with, that is already changing the atmosphere. That's already an ordinary, a small deed of an ordinary person that, that changes the atmosphere in some way. All of these things, that even our tiniest actions in our bodies, in the physical, in our words, have ripple effects into eternity. Jesus takes those and he, he expands them. He amplifies them. He, he does incredible things. With the fish and the loaves that we give him, he takes them and he feeds many. So don't feel like I don't have enough to feed 5,000. You've got a few fish and a few loaves. Bring it. With gratitude, with, with giving everything you've got, he takes it and he just blows it up in the best way. He, he expands it. He explodes it into something that can feed many people. So don't underestimate the power that you have to bring change, the power that your everyday actions have as living martyrs testifying to the incredible, incredible grace of God.
I think, though, even as we say living martyrs, there's also a dying in that. The Bible talks about dying to ourselves, to our own ambitions, to our own egos, to, to our own ideas about how things should be done. And just saying, Jesus, your life through me. I know that, that you have incredible wisdom. You know me. You know how you've made me. I don't have to sit and just figure this out on my own. You never leave me. You never forsake me. You can come and live your life through me. Bring your life through me. Spread your love through me. I want to be a vessel. And anything, you know, the, the thing is, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that, that, you know, take off every sin that, that hinders us, that entangles us, so that we can run the race set before us. And say, oh, God, I want nothing. I want nothing in the way of, of what you've got, of the life that you have for me. Even the, the tiniest thing, I count it as, as rubbish. I want it out. I want you alone to, to be my source. Isn't that incredible that we can live for something greater than ourselves? Imagine trying to build a business or a legacy of some kind. You look, you look at a graveyard, somebody living 100 years ago. How many people from 100 years ago do we still know their names? But in Jesus, our actions can have ripples into eternity because they, our actions, words, those things mixed, empowered, catalyzed by the Holy Spirit. Ripples from a stone that just keep going into eternity. Something bigger than ourselves. Something beyond this body and this time and this space and this now. We can build something that's not a fading kingdom. Something that's going to get covered in moss and, and lichen and you know knocked over or but something that is an incredible eternal glory, something that will only get bigger and brighter and clearer and, and, and just more glorious. That's the something we can build towards. What, what is anything else worth when we can build towards that? If I've got energy and I can put it into something that glorifies God or something that's just, I want to put it into something that's, that brings glory. One thing that I also learned from, from reading this book is that we need to make sure that our relationship with Jesus is our own. It's not because my mom or my husband or my wife or my whoever is a believer, but it's mine. You know, I, I thought of these people stuck in a jail cell for years just on their own. If it's someone else's faith, you probably wouldn't have ended up there. But if you did, you would never, you need to have that faith of of your own. It needs to be settled for you. Not, well, they believe it, so I'll, I'll take it. It needs to be something settled and something that doesn't need props. Which is an odd way of saying it. I remember somebody saying, oh, I, could never, I could never do without this or I could never do without that. And, and, and in my kind of early Christian brain thinking, I, I would kind of do this almost as a thing, but what if I was prison on my own? I would need to do without that. So Jesus, I'm happy to do without that. I, I don't want my faith to be dependent on anything else but Jesus. Otherwise, I get into that place and, and I, I've, I've got nothing to go on. It has to be absolutely rooted in Jesus. Absolutely rooted in Jesus. When Jesus was um, 
you know, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, um, you have no, no part in the kingdom. And then all the, 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 the disciples, the bigger group of disciples, run away. <laughs> uh, and the 12 are left behind. And Jesus says, why don't you go as well? And they said, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He alone has the words of eternal life. We need to be so rooted and established, lava hot core inside of him that, that that's actually all we need. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. The props are great. The community is amazing. We can help each other to reach that place of having Jesus for ourselves. But that needs to be the start and the finish, the end, Jesus. The end and the beginning, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we start to see this, the New Testament makes a lot more sense. The New Testament was written for and to people who were living in daily fear of their lives for the gospel that they were preaching. We may never have the decision, need to make the decision to die for our faith, but every day we can make a decision to live for it.